Uh, while you're turning to Acts chapter 4, uh, before we launch this morning, I, I, I need to give you a little bit of a disclaimer. Well, it's not a disclaimer, it's kind of a heads up. Uh, I found uh, this week when I was studying that this passage really isn't preached on a lot. Um, sometimes after I get my uh, notes done, my outline, my sermon pretty much done, I'll I'll go and I'll look online and just really for sermons to just see how people entitle them, you know, to see if I'm kind of, if I'm out in left field from everybody else or, you know, or maybe gets just get an idea of, the, of a kind of a big idea or something like that. So I went to my normal guys and I was looking, you know, and I couldn't find anybody that preached on this passage. Uh, so then I went to a site <laughs> that has over one and a half million sermons on it, right? And, uh, and there's probably five or six hundred of them on Acts chapter four. Okay, and there was a lot of sermons on the, on the whole chapter. Uh, there was a lot of sermons on the first part and the middle part of the chapter. Um, but there weren't, I mean, I, I, after I paged through like, well, maybe seven or eight pages of, uh, 50 sermons of peach on, on each one of these pages, you know, and I didn't, you know, study all of them, but I, but I just found one that was on this passage. Just one. I mean, I, I, I went there and it was like a ghost town, you know, and so I, I thought, well, I wonder why that is. But I got to thinking, well, you know, what we're talking about this morning, what we're going to be preaching about and studying in the word is a prayer meeting. And I was wondering if the pastors were kind of shying away from preaching about a prayer meeting because it might be like fishing, you know. The only thing more boring than fishing is watching a show about fishing. And the only thing more boring than maybe a prayer meeting is a sermon about a prayer meeting. So uh, with that heads up, we're going to... We're going to go where no man or a few men, as Captain Kirk used to put it, have gone before. Well, it didn't take long for the apostles to figure out that they were going to face opposition as they preached the gospel. And I'm sure that they remembered that Jesus had told them that in the world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus promised that there would be conflict as a result of preaching the gospel. Whitfield, you know, we always quote Spurgeon here, right? Okay, well, uh, I read a biographer of Spurgeon, and the guy that Spurgeon quoted the most was a guy by the name of George Whitfield. And he said this. He said, if you're going to walk with Jesus Christ, you're going to be opposed. In our days, to be a true Christian is really to become a scandal. And he said that in the 1700s. Leonard Ravenhill put it a different way. He said, if a Christian is not having tribulation in the world, there's something wrong. Well, there's two ways, and only two ways, to avoid conflict with the gospel. The first one is just disobedience to the command to preach it and to speak it, to just be silent. It reminds me of a story about these two college buddies, Christian college buddies, that were looking for jobs in the summer. One of them was a cook. And he, and he landed a job at this notoriously body and raucous uh, logging camp. And he was going to be a cook out there for the summer. So he said to his friend, he said, be sure and pray for me. It's going to be rough out there. So 
um, they parted and he was out in the woods all summer and he came back and he said, how did it go? And the guy said, it was great. Nobody even found out that I was. So the first way to avoid conflict is just be disobedient to the command. The second one is to distort the content of the gospel. That is to water it down, to, to, to major on the love and forgiveness of God and somehow just not really ever get to the sin and the judgment that's part of the gospel. But the apostles didn't compromise. Michael Horton in his book subtitled The Alternative Gospel of the American Church says this, Jesus was not a revolutionary because he said we should love God and love each other. Moses said that first. So did Buddha, Confucius, and countless other religious leaders we've never heard of. Madonna, Oprah, Dr. Phil, the Dalai Lama, and probably a lot of other Christian leaders will tell us that the point of religion is to get us to love God and love each other. God loves you doesn't stir the world's opposition. However, start talking about God's absolute authority, His holiness, Jesus' resurrection, His substitutionary atonement, apart from works, the necessity of a new birth, repentance and baptism and future judgment, and all of a sudden, the mood in the room changes. Well, when the man was born, uh, that was born lame was miraculously healed, the apostles seized on that opportunity to proclaim Christ in the closing verses of chapter 3. They preached the gospel, the whole gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, the ruler's guilt for putting Christ to death, and that only Jesus can save. And they urged them to repentance and faith in his name. And after the Jewish rulers threatened them a second time, that is the apostles, not to speak further in the name of Jesus, the apostles returned to their companions and reported. And this is where we put in for the prayer meeting. Now we need to remember, because when you just read a word like threat, that the, that the rulers threatened them, we can just kind of dismiss that word and think, well, I'm not really sure what that means. But what they were threatening them with likely was they would be ex, uh, that, that they would be excluded from the synagogue, which was the center of Jewish life, and the temple, that they would be, uh, they would be kept out of the temple, which was the center of Jewish religious life. They would be outcast and scorned and hated. They could even be jailed or beaten, beaten or worse. And the rulers that the apostles had faced here, that had threatened them, had the authority to do all of those things. And they were the same faces that Peter had looked at over the courtyard when he was warming himself in the fire, right? When Jesus was being tried, so to speak, before the high priest and Peter was staring glances over there, not wanting to make eye contact. But there's the same people that were threatening him now. Well, the apostles returned to their companions for a prayer meeting. And I think that this passage 
that we're looking at today really does offer us a, a roadmap for our faith and thinking when we're facing persecution, which all obedient Christians will. And it also gives us a, a template for answered prayer. So let's look together in Acts 4.23. 4.23. Now, when they had been released, that is the apostles, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, which were the threats. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devise futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So I think it's helpful uh, to, with, this, uh, with this prayer meeting that happened as a result of the threats and the report that the apostles brought back to their people, to the group, to get kind of a, a bird's eye view of the landscape of this passage. Well, first of all, from previous in the story, the apostles had testified obediently. That's what got them into this mess. They faced the threat when they came back and reported, they, they faced the threat communally together. There's a, there's a sermon just in that, that they, they didn't take this on themselves. They came back and they shared it with God's people, and all God's people responded together. It's not a sermon, thankfully, you're going to get today. But there's one there. They prayed fervently. You know, obedience to God drives us to prayer drives us to depend on Him, the power to do it. And that's what they were doing, is they were praying for power in verse 24 and for endurance. And in that prayer, they acknowledged God's sovereignty. We're going to talk about that here uh, in detail a little bit more. Next, uh, 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 they considered, the apostles considered, as they, as they look back to Psalms in verse 25 and 26, they considered their situation biblically. The Bible became their frame of reference for their experience. They confessed God's sovereignty in verse 27 and 28 over their conflict. They said, God, not only are you sovereign, creator of heaven and earth, but you are sovereign in this situation, which is very different. R.C. Sproul says that most Christians salute the sovereignty of God, but they believe in the sovereignty of man. 
When sovereignty comes out of the heavens and, and, and just a confession that, yeah, we, we agree, we acknowledge that God is sovereign over this thing and over one end of heaven to the other end and over all the affairs of man and over history and all of that. That's one thing. But when it comes down to what's in my heart and what's facing me, well, it's kind of like, my, you know, the difference between the major and minor surgery, right? Major surgery is when I have it. Minor surgery is when you have it. They confessed God's sovereignty and they yielded their lives submissively. Take note, they said, of our of the threats and grant your servants to speak. And finally, um, God answered emphatically. The place they were shook, that they were in, was shook. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak boldly. Well, they confessed God's absolute power. If we look. They say, O oh Lord, you are a creator of heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them. There's a word there that's used that we need to take note of. It's the word for Lord. Normally, the word for Lord is kuri or kurios, which is used, I think, like 624 times in the New Testament. This word is used three times. So it's a word that needs to capture our attention and, and, and focus on it. And the word for Lord there is, transla- is translated despote. We would call it despot. And while despot normally has a, a negative content, uh, you know, because we think of Hitler or Mussolini or somebody like that, that's not what it is. Really, what, it, what it's focusing on is, is, is God's unlimited, unquestioned power and his right to do whatever he wants. Whatever he wants. And, and it differs from the term Lord in this way. It, it differs from the term kurios, I should say, in this way. Because kurios is, is relational. It, it gives the idea of the head of something, the head of a house with responsibilities. But despot is just talking about sheer power. And they confess that power. I mean, after all, we're talking about the God who created ex nihilo. That is, out of nothing, he spoke words in the earth and the sea and everything that's in them came into being. A God that does whatever he wants and has the power. You know, the psalmist said in, uh, verse, in, in Psalm 135, and I love this about God, our God is in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Now, thinking about this, A.W. Tozer said this. He said, the most important thing about a man is what he thinks about God. Because his perception of God determines how he views himself, his world, his trials, and his hope. When we acknowledge God's sovereignty, his absolute power, we're dealing with reality. Not the way things seem. But the way that things are, there is no more universal truth than I am that I am. And that's who God declared himself to be. There is no truth that's greater than that. There's no truth that supersedes that. There's no truth that doesn't fit underneath that. I am that I am. So if you want to take home from just this little section here, it's this. If God wanted your situation to change. Whatever it is, he'd change it. 
He's got the power to change it. It doesn't matter how unlikely, how unanticipated, how impossible, and how beyond hope the situation is. The sovereign God overrules, overpowers, preempts, controls, and stands conventional wisdom on its head. And he delights to do that. That's the God. That's the sovereign God. That's the the despote. If our situation remains unchanged, it's because God wills it so. There is no attribute of God more comforting, says Spurgeon. There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. When you go through a trial, he said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow that you lay your head on. When faced with trials, adversity, conflict, especially from preaching the gospel, from sharing the gospel, the whole gospel, what a comfort it is. When you're up against the wall, when you're faced with those trials, like the apostles, to start by reaffirming what you know to be true about God. What insurmountable challenge are you facing? What threats or who is threatening you today? Do you realize what a game changer it is to simply remind yourself, God's got this. God's got me. To tell God, nothing is too difficult for you. He knows that, but he loves it when his children say it. Well, how they viewed God kind of helped the apostles, I think, to view themselves rightly too. Who they saw themselves uh, as they appealed to this, this God, this despote, is they called themselves bond slaves, servants. Verse 29. Now, it's not, a, it's not a household servant. It's not a servant that's part of the family. It's not a servant that has a special in or anything like that. The apostles themselves called themselves slaves. That was the Apostle Paul's favorite description of himself. Matter of fact, he called himself a bond slave as much as he did an apostle. I think it was 11 times each. They saw God as their master and themselves as slaves. I mean, Romans 6.18 says, Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. A slave was somebody that was owned by another. Paul said, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. Therefore, glorify Christ in your bodies. But, you know, we're uncomfortable with the idea of being slaves. To be sure, we're more than slaves. As God's children, we're adopted sons and daughters. We cry out, Abba, Father. There's intimacy and love. But we're slaves, too. David Wells, in one of his books, put it this way. In the church today, God has become weightless, friendly, and fluffy. And his will has become optional often because we're God's buddies. And it's interesting that the the apostles chose the word despot to acknowledge God's sovereign control of them and their predicament. There was nobody that understood Jesus' love 
more than the apostles, but they also understood his lordship. Jesus warned his disciples not to fear men, but God. Do not fear those who kill the body, he said, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. David, shepherd boy David, King David, Psalmist David, in Psalm 119, verse 20, this man loved God deeply, wrote songs about God, poetry about God, expressed himself about his love for God and God's love for him. He was certain of that. But he says this in Psalm 119, verse 20. He says, my flesh trembles for fear of you. And if you translate that literally, it says, my hair stands up for fear of you. I loved my father. I trusted my father. I, uh, I enjoyed my father. But I also feared my father in this sense that I knew that if I needed discipline, I knew what he was capable of doing. We need a, to view God the way that he is. We need a God who dwarfs our problems and fears, whose, whose ways are as high as the heavens above our ways, who sits enthroned on the universe and has to stoop down to behold creation. How great is our God, we sing. How great is your God? Because the greatness of your God will determine how you see yourself and your life situations. We sing another song that I wonder if we believe. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Now the only possible, logical, genuine, honest response to God's loving sovereignty is complete submission to His will, come what may. Jesus asked His disciples a question that I think we just kind of blow over because it, it seems kind of incongruous and in some ways funny. He says, Why is it that you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? Love and a desire to obey Jesus are inseparable. Obedience is the proof of our love. In 1 John 2, it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And because they wanted to obey the, the apostles, the, their requests were in view, were in keeping, I should say, of their view of God and themselves. They said this. This was the request. This is where the prayer meeting was going, was the request. They asked, Take note of their threats. That is the ruler's threats. In other words, you decide what you want to do about their threats. We trust that you're in control, not only of us, but of them. We trust ourselves to your loving care. That was the first request. And the second one was give your bondservants 
your slaves to speak your word with confidence. In other words, give us what we need to obey your commands. Confidence, boldness. Boldness, confidence to speak God's word, the gospel, is a divine gift. It's not a moral virtue that can be acquired by repeated exercise and, you know, you just get good at it. We see all kinds of examples in the scripture where uh, 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 a person was bold in one instance and the next one they were just falling all over themselves in fear. Boldness is a divine gift. That's why they prayed for it. That's why we should pray for it continually. Well, they considered, the apostles did their circumstances biblically. We read verse 25 and 26. They're quoting out of Psalm 2 here, which is a a wonderful psalm, which finds its way, by the way, as it was placed. It wasn't the second psalm written, but it's the second one in the Psalter. It's the second one in the book of Psalms. It's an important, it's kind of like at the front of the line almost. Verse 25, who, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They understood that the rage that they were facing was against Christ's rule. This this also tells them that the that the rebellion that they're looking at is bigger than they are and it's futile. It says, why did the peoples devise a futile thing? Is vain. There wasn't what they were experiencing was not just a, a a confrontation on a small level, but it represented a confrontation of kingdoms that was much larger than they were. And they could also see through this psalm that that Jesus' victory through conflict was God's plan. They were able to discern the hand of God in this conflict. With the rulers, it was just a microcosm of the clash between the kingdom of God and that of the world. They understood God's sovereignty. They went to and, 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 and were informed by a psalm that had been written, a prophecy of, of the conflict that they were living out, the conflict that they had seen Jesus live out. They, they, they went to a psalm that predicted that, that prophesied that 1,100 years before. And, there's, and, and in, in this, this thing, too, there's, there's little kind of subtle clues about God's sovereignty. Here's just one of them. It says the, the ruler's... You know, and the, and the kings were gathered together. And that's a passive voice. It's not like they gathered themselves together. It's not like they were involved. It's like they were gathered together by somebody else for this confrontation. They see God's hand of sovereignty all over the place in here. They saw God's hand in it. And, and they confessed that. To, they said to do whatever your hand and your purpose had predestined to occur. God's purposes prevail. They did so in Christ. They would prevail with the apostles before the rulers. And God's purposes will prevail in your life and in my life. 
And there's something else here that I hope we don't miss that's instructive for us. And that is that the, the apostles, they looked to the scriptures to explain their experience and not vice versa. That's, that's really important because the lens of scripture is as clear as a bell and it shines God's light and gives us understanding. Whereas the lens of our experience is often distorted and dark. You know, when you read this book, as one guy said, it reads you. Now, had the apostles looked through their experience of being threatened, they could have determined that that God had basically abandoned them because they were facing all of this conflict and blowback. They could have thought that Jesus' plan for them was unraveling, that the gospel would not be preached. In short, they could have thought that the world was winning. But they understood that God was working out His plan in them and their adversaries. And that conflict and suffering are tools of God to accomplish His perfect will. We sing a song, Amazing Grace, about the many dangers, toils, and snares. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Because they viewed God as master of all, they understood that this trouble didn't barge into their lives by some mistake. It was God who put them in this mess. It was God who designed this mess. God was in the mess. God was over the mess. And God had a purpose for the mess. And because they saw God as sovereign, absolutely sovereign over them and in their situation, they prayed for enabling in the conflict They prayed for enabling in the conflict instead of escape from it. Often, Christians appeal to God's sovereign power with the implicit assumption that because God can deliver them out of difficulty, that he is somehow obligated to and must. In the 1960s, Some of us remember the 60s. There was a cartoon called Mr. Wizard. And uh, Mr. Wizard had a a kind of young protege, and his name was Tudor the Turtle, okay? And Tudor the Turtle, uh, well, Mr. Wizard was actually a lizard with a wizard cap, so he was kind of a lizard wizard or a wizard lizard. And so Tudor, his, his young protege, would get himself into all kinds of predicaments where the situations would get totally out of hand. He'd get some kind of danger or something like that. And Tudor had this, had this thing that he would say, he would just simply close his eyes and he'd say, Mr. Wizard, help! Mr. Wizard, help! And like clockwork, Mr. Wizard would utter the magic words, Drizzle, drazzle, drizzle, drome, time for this one to come home. And suddenly... Tudor would just vanish from whatever trouble he was in and reappear in front of the kindly Mr. Wizard. Many Christians have this view of God's sovereignty. They have kind of a Mr. Wizard theology, if you will. God is there to get them 
out of the messes, the conflicts, and the discomfort, and the suffering. But persecution and suffering, conflict are not in the fine print of the Bible. Jesus repeatedly warns us that we'll be hated and suffer on his account. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And Hebrews 12 tells us to consider him, that is Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to suffer like Jesus, yes. We're to be like Jesus, yes. But the power of the gospel is not that we strive to be like Jesus, but that he became like us and won victory for us through his suffering. He was found in appearance as a man. He experienced hunger, fatigue, threats, and sorrow. He was tempted in every way, just like us, yet without sin. Adam, the father of our race, in a garden where he had everything and needed nothing, was tempted only one time, and he sinned. Jesus was tempted where he had nothing in a desert for 40 days and was repeatedly tempted, and yet without sin. Jesus trusted God to death. Nevertheless, he said, not my will in the garden, but yours. Christ lived a sinless life for us. He endured hostility for us. He died for us. He rose again for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news that God has commanded, commanded all men everywhere to believe and repent of their sins. Well, the last thing I think we see in this passage is that they yielded their lives submissively. The only genuine logical response to God's sovereignty is obedience to his will. The question is not whether God is sovereign in the heavens and in the universe and over the affairs of history and over the affairs of the future, but whether you have yielded to his sovereignty in your heart. Because if you have, obedience and a desire for obedience is the result. They prayed for boldness. You notice that? They said they prayed for boldness for the opportunity before them. And there's a little phrase in there that says, while you extend your hand to heal and do signs and wonders. While. They prayed for boldness while God was doing this. Is, do, do, do we see there, I mean, this is just a question that the apostles anticipated that some of these miracles and signs and signs at some time would pass away. They, regardless of that, they viewed the threats as an opportunity to be seized for the gospel, not a conflict to avoid. You can't seize the opportunity if you're avoiding the conflict. The attention the apostles received from the healing was a good thing. It was an opportunity for the gospel. And so was the conflict that they experienced as a result of their preaching. 
God uses, our sovereign God uses conflict and adversity to glorify Himself. We've read Job. God allowed Job all of his wealth to be destroyed and all of his children to be taken from him. And Job's health sunk to an unbearably miserable state. But after the endless chapters, and there's 40-some, I think 42 chapters of Job, after endless chapters of suffering and questioning, Job came face to face with God. That is, he understood who God is, and it was more than enough. Job. Job said this after all of that. He said to God, he said, I've heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you and I repent in dust and ashes. That's a great response to a sovereign God. The apostles were looking at this opportunity while God extended His hand. How's God extending His hand in your life? What opportunities is He giving you for the gospel? In your successes? In your blessings? But also in your loss? In sicknesses? In rejection? Or grief. Are you praying for obedience to tell the gospel as God extends his hand in your life? Father, we thank you for this passage, this example, Lord, for us of your loving sovereign hand. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us to acknowledge your sovereign loving control in whatever state we find ourselves. Give us boldness to speak out for Jesus and give us eyes like Job to see you and it will be enough. In Jesus' name, amen.